This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello, it's producer Rog here on the Offscript podcast. Thank you for downloading it. You're in for a musical treat today. Sonal's been delving into some of the best musical covers of all time, some that you didn't even realise were covers. And I've been talking to Michael Spencer-Jones, an integral figure in Britpop. You'll know his work even if you don't recognise his name. Enjoy. The Offscript podcast. I came across a story about Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters frontman, who is getting some headlines for a little cover that he did. Now, Ooh. apparently he does this. This is the second year he's done this. He calls it Hanukkah Sessions, in which he covers a series of Jewish musicians. Right. So he did this last year. I think he did about eight or so. And he's kicked off another series this year. He started with Lisa Loeb's Stay. And it's it's a bit different. And you say... What the heck <laughs> is this? I was not expecting that. Are you not enjoying party. this? No. You know what? I kind of dig it. Of course you dig it. Of course you do. Why am I not surprised <laughs> by that? That is a racket. <laughs> At first, when I heard it, I was a little shocked, as you were. My, I, I kind of jumped little. back in my seat the same way you just did. But then as the song goes on, I actually came to quite appreciate it. Of course you did, though. So no. <laughs> Listen, we've all had our billabong stage in life. I remember that, my thumb ring. You, you had the wallet chain. With the wallet your chain. Your skater boy. You had the little bleach blonde tip no, at the top I of your did head, didn't you? No, I drew the line at that, but I may or may not have had a thumb ring and the Vans and the Converse trainers. Yeah. Well, anyways, listening. I personally enjoy it. Let us know what you think of that. So Dave Grohl got me thinking a little bit about covers and the best covers, which is not something we've talked about very much. So I'm going to throw you under the bus, Chris. No, because I, yeah, I'm not throwing this. No, you have to. Because I don't even think it's a cover. No, well, go ahead. Let's see. I asked you. You were obviously, as we know, en route down Hester no, Street. No, I wasn't. I was actually, was I en route or yeah. was I? Okay. You were either en route. You were either going there or coming back. Right. And I said, listen, Chris, just give me your top cover because I've gotten one from Raj. Which one's yours? I don't even think this is a cover. So don't judge me. Well, you're going to judge me anyway. Take a listen. Oh, fave musical cover. It's got to be Cher, believe. Right. <laughs> now, I would have had no idea. I would have taken your word for it that that was a cover. That's not a cover. I fortunately played this to Raj before we proceeded, and he just started laughing and, of course, said, That isn't a cover. And for anybody that doesn't remember this it's particular not a cover. song, you've stitched me up. <laughs> Do you believe in love at love? You know what I was thinking? Cover or not, the fact that you chose that. <laughs> Listen, I'm in the middle of an event. I've got no time to think like that, and Cher's the only one that comes to mind. Uh, the one that I was meaning is Walking in Memphis, the one that you love so much. Uh, Okay, okay, okay. So okay. it tells you I wasn't really engaged okay, in what fair. I was saying, and I've been stitched up on national radio. So thanks for that. That is Believe Mum, if you're listening. <laughs> that's for you, because I know you're a fan. This song would actually, if I had to compile a list of my five least favourite songs of all time, of all time, it would be up this, there, would, this would be in my top five. Love it, right there. Yeah, so uh, thanks for that no. treat today. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to be too much better. You're not going to be too pleased with me because oh I'm rather than going for the classic right. cover, I quite enjoy, you know, those live lounge sessions where you love. have pop artists or commercial artists today take on a contemporary artist, love right? That. So this is one that I actually really like. This is from Triple J. And do you remember this 1990s hit from so. Tamiya? Here we go. Now, 
that up. You know how I feel about Childish Gambino, Donald Glover. Yes. And he did a Triple J Live Lounge cover of it, and this is one of my favorite covers. Really like what you done to me. I can't really explain it. I'm so into you. Your face says it all. You're not too pleased with me. No, no. You just think I've taken a worse version because it's less kind of upbeat than the original. Both, listen, lovely song. Yeah. I'm not going to poke fun and poke holes in it. Both lovely songs. Yeah. Well, you know what? We're going to get all of, now that we've gotten our nonsense out of the way, of course, I asked producer Raj and his suggestion also happened to be Rolling Stone's number one of of best all-time covers. That's from a list that came out in about 2011, so it didn't include the newer ones. Let me guess. Did producer Raj say to you, give me a couple of minutes. I need to think about this. <laughs> and then he delivered the answer. Absolutely not. Producer Raj being producer Raj, it was within two seconds straight off the bat, didn't even have to Here think about it. It was, of course, this. All along the watchtower, princes kept the view. While all the women came now, this is the original Bob Dylan for you. We've got the Jimi Hendrix cover coming up, which oh, is, of course, the favorite cover. Okay. Is this it here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely gives me goosebumps. And listen, if you're Bob Dylan and you're a legend, so you don't have any insecurities, but somebody sure comes along and does that to one of your songs, yeah, how would you be feeling about it? Yeah, you wouldn't feel great because Robbie's got this <laughs> feeling that the original, how can you ever beat the original? He bangs this no, drum about the office all the time. That's not true. That's On just that not true. Occasion, yeah. I would argue that Jimmy smashed it out of the park. I have to admit, I've only known that as a Jimi Hendrix song. I yes. didn't even know it was Bob Dylan yeah, I'm, I'm who wrote it. So the story goes that Jimi Hendrix, so this is rumor, there are different stories about this, that he got his hands on a copy of the album before it was released, and he was immediately completely infatuated with this song. So he decided to cover this, because usually you think of a song cover happening years after. He did it within months of the original. Um, And Jimmy actually had such a huge obsession with Bob Dylan in general. I mean, one of his former girlfriends talked about a certain moment that she remembers. I said, man, you better tell me who you spent our last five hours on. You you wouldn't tell me nothing. He just kept flashing the thing. Then he finally took it out of the bag. And... um, he still wouldn't let me read it, but he took it out of the bag and was reading some of the things that said off it to me up in the air like this. And, and he finally came in and told me it was Bob Dylan. You know, I said, Bob, who? Bob Dylan. You never heard of Bob Dylan? I said, no, I never heard of Bob Dylan, you know. And I'm saying, what's with this weird cat? You know, because, like, I mean, you know, Bob Dylan was really a genius in his own right, but I just couldn't get ready for it. And I figured Jimmy was so heavy into what I was into, he would never like anything like that, you know. But he just loved it to death. Jimmy was a super fan. I mean, these are some of the, the types of things that he would do. He would carry a Dylan songbook in his travel bag. He apparently in a Harlem club. You can imagine in a Harlem club back then what oh. sorts of songs are on. He forced the DJ to play Blowing in the Wind, which <laughs> apparently cleared the dance floor. He also found Dylan's guitarist, Robbie Robertson, and just absolutely peppered him with questions about how Bob was writing his songs. And apparently Robertson replied, usually on a typewriter. <laughs> <Just dead-bombed it. laughs> yeah, he Dumped a girlfriend, allegedly, using lyrics from a Dylan song called Most Likely You Go Your Way and I'll Go Mine. He didn't. 
I mean, these are these are reports that I read of of how much he, he was a fan of Bob Dylan. A girlfriend using Dylan's lyrics. Uh, that's that's what is is said about this. Wow. We'll get to how Bob Dylan felt about Jimi Hendrix as well, because the uh, respect was definitely mutual and the appreciation was mutual in terms of if they've ever met. Once again, this is there. There are different stories about that, but they met at least once. At least once, Hendrix reported to Rolling Stone that he said, "I only met him once about three years ago." I mean, this is obviously when he was when he was alive. Back at a hangout on McDougal Street, that was before I went to England. He probably doesn't remember it. So it sounds like for these two legends meeting was almost inconsequential. However, there's another story that is from a third party. It's not from Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix. The guy's name is Deering Howe, and he's a friend of Jimmy's. And he told the story that one day they were walking down New York City and they see a figure on the other side of the road. Jimmy says, hey, that's Dylan. I've never met him before. Let's go talk to him. So he, he runs down the street dodging traffic going, hey, Bob. <laughs> now, Bob, this is according to this friend Deering. He says, I think Dylan was a little concerned at first hearing someone shout his name and racing across the street towards him. But then they recognized each other. And Jimmy apparently introduced himself. He goes, Bob, uh, I'm, a, I'm a singer. You know, I'm called a Jimi Hendrix. And of course, Dylan knew exactly who Jimmy was and said he loved all of his covers. And they walked away. It didn't The interaction wasn't long, but Jimmy was on cloud nine, That's is what it. the friend I, says. I know the old saying as well, you're not supposed to meet your heroes. Yeah. That's what a lot of people say. And I've met a few, certainly individuals that when I was a young kid, you know, watching football growing up with. And you know what? Everyone to date has been all right. Yeah. Genuinely been all right. The only Most one, people are, you know. I think that way. And I think you've got to remember, and I've said it on the show loads of times, despite the fact that they are demigods to many, sporting men and women or whatever your genre is, if it's music and they're a front man for a band or a front lady, doesn't matter. Yeah. At the end of the day, they're human, right? Of course. They have the same emotions. And sometimes, yeah, certainly in my experience, the guys and gals that I've looked up to, totally fine. Yeah. You know what? Everybody's got a lot of the same concerns in life when it comes down to it. A lot of the same things that they enjoy and that they appreciate. You know, I can imagine why certain people get a bit guarded Mm. if perhaps people always want something for them. Let's say you can imagine where some of those precious behaviors come (laughs) bounding towards you with a microphone. Most people are all right. Most people, I think, are are good to me. And um, Dylan also appreciated Jimi Hendrix quite a bit to the point that he has changed his way of playing that song after hearing Jimmy. Jimmy's version. Wow. So he went on to say huh. that Hendrix could find things inside a song and vigorously develop them. He found things that other people wouldn't think of finding in there. I took license with the song from his version, actually, and continue wow. to do it to this day. So it actually affected the way they influenced each other. That's incredible. And how this song is now finally performed. He said, That's I incredible. liked Hendrix's record ever since he died. I've been doing it that way. I love that. My goodness. So the song we hear now and very much is a collaborative effort. Well, if Bob Dylan is to perform it today, he does it considering the cover, not as he originally wrote it and performed it. That is brilliant. Let's talk about one more quickly. The Beatles, Twist and Shout. Oh, I never talking. Again, I have to admit, I thought this was their song. I didn't know it was a cover. It was originally written in 1961 by Phil Medley and Burt Burns. It was recorded by a group called The Top Notes, who it didn't really make any waves, but it did find chart success finally when the Isley Brothers did a rendition that reached the top 20. Here's a listen.
course, it's a song synonymous with the cult classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> of course it is. The Chicago Parade. You've got Ferris up there, and it is just one of those yeah. one of those songs. I said it, I think, last week. It came on on the radio. It's the kind of song my mum yeah. is up at a wedding, and she is just thrusting those hips. And I don't know if I've heard this version before. I actually really love it, the Isley Brothers one we just heard. But the Beatles performance took place on February 11th, 1963, and they were closing out just a marathon recording session. This was for their debut LP, Please Please Me. And they were just trying to get all these songs recorded out at once to the point where uh, George Martin, the producer, suggested saving Twist and Shout for the final song because he was fully aware of what it would do to John Lennon's voice because John Lennon's voice was completely shredded at this point. A bit like mine. And so, yeah, Do not that, ask me to it, sing Twist and Shout. Here we go. Makes the song that his voice, yeah. That version is incredible. Seriously, but can you imagine if his voice had been perfect? I mean, he had to gargle milk and swallow cough drops. And he had to do the song in just two takes because the first take, I think, is the one they ended up using the second take. By then, his voice was gone after a whole day of singing. To stay away from dairy, to stay away from caffeine. I'm doing it all and I'm not getting any better. John Lennon was gargling milk to get through this song. But that's why it sounds so raw is because his his throat, his voice was just completely done at that point. In fact, he was so disappointed at first. He said, I could sing better than that, but now it doesn't bother me. You can hear that I'm just that frantic guy doing his best. Love it. But that's what makes it sound so good. That's why I am anyone that has an issue with my voice. You know what I am? I'm just a frantic guy doing my very level best. There's one in particular that keeps coming up and so many of you have got in touch and there's one song in particular that is just beautiful. The original, I believe, was from a gentleman by the name of Leonard Cohen. Take Correct. You say that's nice. Yeah, right? exactly. It just doesn't have any oomph, no, does it? And zero. The little bit of the backstory of this song, Leonard Cohen's career had reached a bit of a low point when he had written this song. It was in it was 1984 at the time. He'd been out of the spotlight, so he had a album in 1977, Death of a Ladies' Man, which was a bit of a commercial flop. He also had his next album, Recent Songs, which didn't do too much better. So he was at a bit of a low point when he submitted this song, to the point that the label executives didn't even hear Hallelujah. It was the opening song of Side 2 mm. of the album. And so they didn't particularly want to release this album, but eventually it did come out in 1984. Anyway, it took a few years for Hallelujah, really, though, to emerge. And Bob Dylan was one of the first people to recognize it. He played it at a couple of his shows in 1988. And then at some point, the Velvet Underground's John Cale created a stripped-down version in 1991 as part of a Leonard Cohen tribute album. It was finally Jeff Buckley who really put this song on the map. And let's have a little listen to this. This is just wow. A secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? When it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah. Chills. It's amazing. 
course, it was made, I say made famous, it was in the OC, wasn't it? Was it? Spoiler alert, when uh, Misha Barton's uh, character, when she was in the car crash, and that song, oof, remember that, that was teen angst. Rachel Bilson, Misha Barton, who's the fella that's now in Gotham? Oh, Adam, Adam. No, no oh, he was, Adam Brody was in it yeah. as well. But there was the other guy, uh, something Mackenzie, Mackenzie, Benj- uh, Mackenzie Benjamin. Okay. You get there. <laughs> your ability to contain all of this in your brain is, is beyond me. So we've had, um, I just want to play a few that have come in from listeners as well in terms of other covers. A lot of people also shouting out Guns N' Roses. Yeah, I've got to play this. Guns N' Roses, knocking on heaven's door. That's right. Prashant take, has shouted this out. Take a listen. Mama, take this bad. Once again, I didn't, and this exposes my lack of music knowledge, didn't know it was a Bob Dylan song, this originally. It was covered by Eric Clapton, U2, and then, of course, I think most famously by Guns N' Roses. It's a great song. It's an absolutely great song. I've always said it. Miley Cyrus does a number of great covers. She does, um, who's Dolly Parton's big one, Jolene. She does an incredible version of that, and I've said that a while back as well. If you haven't listened to that, take a listen. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, talking about Miley Cyrus, um, who was in touch earlier to say Miley Cyrus's version of Help, and in fact, we do have oh, we this do have to play out for okay, you as well. Okay, take a listen to this. Very good. Enjoying a bit of that. Miley Cyrus Help, that's the Beatles cover. We've also had uh, someone sing Oasis, I Am the Walrus. Now, forgive me if I'm wrong on that. It's the Beatles song, no? So let's hear it. Someone else has texted and say the brothers come together. Loving that. That's a road trip if ever there was yeah. one. Uh, Chandan has shouted out the wallflowers did a decent job with David Bowie's heroes. Take a listen. fair to say there are some far better cover songs out there than Cher's Walking <laughs> in Memphis. There, I've admitted it just for you, Sono Rapani. Uh, just for you. The Offscript Podcast. Keep your suggestions coming in. One hour down, we're into the six o'clock hour next. Living on a prior. It's a musical loving on Offscript tonight. Don't go anywhere. 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Two minutes after six on your drive home. The long weekend for many of you is here, you lucky so-and-so's. Work for us to do, though, over the course of the next couple of hours, just as well. We've got producer Rog popping in past. Yeah, it's living on a prior, one of our favourite features. And today, Rog's taking a slightly different look at it. In fact, he's looking at album art, and he's spoken to one of the people behind Britpop's best album covers. He has, and in sport after seven, it's fair to say I've been rather busy today. We're talking to a young woman who's going to be flying the flag for India at the Mai Tai Championships next month over in Thailand. I've also been in conversation with a man who makes the world go round when it comes to golf right here locally, Rory McIlroy. He's on the card for the Slink Dubai Desert Classic. I've been talking to James Haskell. I've been talking to Dylan Hartley and many more rugby greats. They're in town. The Emirates Dubai, sevens, two days away. We'll build up to that. 
that after seven for now though it's back over to Sonsi she's got the very latest news headline yeah please do seven minutes after six o'clock someone's got her hand up well so many people have joined the conversation yeah, and we haven't had a chance to get to some of these messages in the last hour I just want to get to some of them because they're amazing uh, message in to say Bruce Springsteen's Purple Rain yeah you know did what? not know that he did a cover now I need to hear that I do uh, and I know Robbie does as well, probably. If yeah, you exactly. Natalie Imbruglia, Torn is another one of those songs people don't realize is a is cover. It? Did not realize that? I yeah, think. I believe yeah. it is, yeah. Huge, huge song before. That's the voice in of Australia. producer Rog. Well done, Rog. Popped Sorry. in. Sorry. It's my, no, it's my fault for not introducing you into said conversation. Yeah, we got straight straight back into Sorry, it. Uh, Foo Fighters Band On The Run by Martin. Steppenwolf American Woman has been remade, but I cannot think of the band, says somebody else. Now, this one from Ramsey. Whitney Houston's version of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You, which, once again, didn't realize it was a cover. So wait, Dolly sung it first? Mm-hmm. Did yeah. she really? Have a listen. I'll think of you Ooh. each step of the way And I will always love you there, will There's something when you think of Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You that you think there's no way that could be done in a way that's better. And I wouldn't say with these two versions better or worse, Mm. but I actually think there's something about this one that has that haunting quality where it gives that emotion. Mm. I mean, hers has that power of emotion, but this has that like real yearning in it, right? Yeah, yearning. Great use of the word. Absolutely right. I wasn't aware of that either. So that was Dolly Parton's original song and Whitney, of course, turned it into the blockbuster that it became. Fascinating stuff. Producer Rog is with us. Good afternoon. Good evening to you, Rog. Good afternoon. Good evening to you guys. Great to have you. I've got to say a massive thanks to both of you because you have well and truly both stepped up to the plate. No Robbie today. I've been here, there and everywhere. And thankfully, we've got a show to talk of (laughs) and to speak of. So well done both. It felt a bit like we were spinning plates until about... Still is, Chief. I've got a sports (laughs) Five minutes ago. I've got a sports quiz in two hours and I've got eight questions to find. So any quiz masters out there that just wants to message in, any good sports quiz questions you've come across, please do because I'm under the pump between now and quarter past eight. I'm just being honest, as I always am, on off script. And of course, people want to come down to meet the two of you. Yeah, you can do. Yeah, free plug. Phileas Fogg is where it's at. Quarter past eight this evening. And we'll have... A right laugh. Yes, we will. Sports quiz, a festive sports quiz as well. So do pop on down if you've got nothing else better to do with your Tuesday night. Yeah, I mean, I love when Raj tests out some of the rounds on me because I know the (laughs) least about sports of anybody imaginable. But some really, I'm really excited about your picture round. Yes, he is the creative genius. I just rock up and you know what? Tonight, I'm hands off. My voice is about to clap out at any second. Therefore, I'm merely there tonight as a cheerleader for producer Raj. (laughs) I wouldn't want to see you in cheerleaders I do not need you to think about me in a cheerleader's outfit. Thank you very much, (laughs) producer Rog. You keep your thoughts to yourself, my friend. But you are in because it is that time of the week for living on a prior and something a little different this week. Yeah, I've uh, I've gone off script as as is the fashion in this uh, studio. So I'm not talking about an album. I'm talking about a man that took the photograph on the front of a lot of albums. Love it. So looking forward to this. His name is what? Michael Spencer Jones. 
man you might have not heard of, but as you said to me in the office a little earlier, it's a man you will definitely be aware of through his work. Yeah, 100%. You've seen this guy's work. You've probably bought it. Right then, we have got that upcoming for you in about five minutes' time, Okay, So don't go anywhere. Not before, though. We've played a bit of Simple Minds. On Dubai, I want to feed Fellow Scotsman for you, Chris. It's St Andrew's Day. It is St Andrew's Day. Hey, you're absolutely right to all the Scots out there this afternoon into the evening. Happy St Andrew's Day to you. This one, very much for you guys. Worth just reiterating that it is St Andrew's Day, of course. Patron saint of St Andrew's been celebrated back in Scotland, my native uh, country, of course. So happy uh, St Andrew's Day to all the Scots. And I know there are one or two that listen to this show, a little crumb of home listening to me on the drive home. And I have to apologise to everyone else who is probably still, after three years, struggle to understand absolutely everything that I say. And I have been told to slow down and enunciate. You always say this, it's nonsense. Just we can understand it. you. I just can't do it. Because when I slow down, I start losing my train of thought. <laughs> I, 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 genuinely, that is the truth. I have to get it all out because it's, like, it's like a scattergun. Like, Otherwise, you'll just stop mid-sentence, peter and, out, and, and wait loose, for somebody to pick up the baton. It makes me so uncomfortable. Whenever I try and slow down, I just don't know where the conversation is going to go. So I've got to stay talking quickly. Uh, right then, it is year of the 50th, the official 50th UE National Day celebration. It will mark the country's golden jubilee through a spectacular show that highlights the deep connections between people, nature and technology. It is staged at Hatta Dam. It is going to be surrounded by the beautiful Hajar Mountains. It's a floating theatrical experience that will take the viewers on a journey through the land's history in the lead-up, of course, to the inception of the Union and the 50 years that followed as well. So you can get tickets at uaenationalday.ae. It is as simple as that. If you want to win tickets, incidentally, to Martin Garrix, Thursday, December the 16th at Coca-Cola Arena, don't go anywhere. Right, you are all for the evening sports quiz masters. Keep your questions in. I make no apologies for this. I've got a sports quiz later. I'm ten questions short. It's been one of those days. Get your questions in that I will use in the quiz later and I'll give you a shout out. The Offscript Podcast. Living on a prior. Paying homage to the greatest albums of all time. Living on a prior, Rog, where are we going? I spoke to Michael Spencer-Jones earlier in the week, who is a man who you probably don't recognise the name of, but you will know his work. He's had a career in the music industry, away from the stage, no adoring fans, uh, no tabloids or paparazzi, yet without him, Oasis, The Verve, Suede would have had very different careers. Uh, in fact, the entire Britpop movement, I would argue, was kind of influenced by the images that he took because he is the man who shot the album cover art of those massive bands and many others like them. It was, I have to say it was a pleasure to talk to him. The first thing I wanted to ask him was, as a photographer, why did he think album artwork is essential? It's like if I say Abbey Road, The Beatles, to you, I know you've immediately thought of... Yeah. The zebra crossing. Yeah, they, they, they become inextricably linked, <clears throat> and um, you know it's because music really doesn't actually exist, does it? Do you know what I mean? That's it, interesting. It's a strange one. Music's a strange one. It doesn't physically exist. It only exists for one moment in time, and then it's gone. So you need this kind of you need something to relate to it. And, you know, photography is, you know, it's like a sort of perfect vehicle, really. And um, and you get to a point where, um, you know, the, the two become, you know, especially definitely maybe, you know, I mean, that cover now is part of that album. And, you know, 
I, I maintain, you know, obviously being a photographer, you know, I've always maintained that the cover is part of the creative content of a record. You know, it, it is, you know, uh, it's like Sergeant Pepper, you know, that album cover photograph is part of the creative content of that work. And without it, it's like the music is almost cut adrift, isn't it? So it's massively, massively important for people to connect and make the connection because, you know, like, you know, you can't see music, you can't touch music, you can't, yeah. you know, it, it, it's very ephemeral. Oh, he's gone deep with us. Mm. He went deep. He went deep early on. And we'll talk to him a little bit more about to, to sort of develop that uh, concept a little bit later on. We're going to talk a bit about his career. Um, but I was just wondering, do you remember the first album that you bought? Oh, I do not. You don't? I actually don't. Do you know, it might have been an Oasis album. Yeah, really? It might have been for me yeah. as well. Yeah, because t- I was thinking my first CD, I remember, was an Ace of Base CD. But my first tape, cassette right. tape, I want to say it was Oasis, yeah. yeah. Cassette tape? Oh, wow. I'm thinking CDs is my first. I would have been, what, 13? Yeah, you know what? Might have, you might be right. It might be Oasis. Yeah. For me, who, do you, you'll remember yours as if it was yesterday, Rog. I do. It was Jason Donovan. Was I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to explain that one to Jason me. Jason Donovan, yeah. Sono. Now sing something for me. Uh, I couldn't even... Oh, he did a duet know. with Kylie, yeah. yeah. Okay. He, was, he was a, he was a TV oh, star. Neighbors. Yeah. You don't remember from Jason Donovan. Kylie the name vaguely, vaguely rings oh, a bell. big Jace. Came over to the UK, did a lot of pantomime, didn't he? Yeah, he did a lot of pantomime. Did Joseph and the Technical the Dream yes, Girl, good did. singer, but um, not... a cheese ball. Oh, okay. Yeah, not, you're not your usual first. It's yeah, a surprise from you, that. Yeah me, yeah, me too, yeah. So, listen, Michael's a fascinating man. He'll talk very interestingly about it as we develop this conversation. Um, but just, uh, I asked him about how he got into the industry, because to me, it's like a dream job. He's in the music industry, but he's not on stage. He's not being scrutinised. It's his work that he's remembered for rather than who he is or what he is. Um, and it was interesting. And he grew up in Yorkshire. He went to art college because he's a massive music fan in London. And then he moved to Manchester to take catalogue photography. So he was photographing tea towels and teacups. Uh, hated the job, worked 80 hours a week. They asked him to do weekends, so he quit. And they said, no, you're not going to quit. We're going to sack you. This was on his birthday. Uh, and so he's, he's cut adrift, as he said, cut adrift in Manchester as the Manchester scene is growing. So um, factory records were big, yeah. the Inspiral Carpets, the Stone Roses. And he just he loved music so much and he was a good photographer that he thrust himself into that industry and kind of the rest is history. So just as the Manchester music scene was on the rise, so right place, right time, right guy, stepped up and the rest is history. It allowed him to take the editorial style photographs that he'd been dreaming of. You know, he told me he was a big fan of surrealist art and he was conscious that if he was working in a professional capacity, he might not be able to do those. Mm. So being able to shoot album artwork is probably as close as you can get. We talked a little bit about that. Um, And his, you know, love of music as well. I told him early on, I said, to me, it sounds like a dream job, but I found out that he takes his job very seriously. Mm. A lot of the shoots weren't, you know, you, you have to have your sort of professional head on. And, you know, some of them weren't particularly comfortable, do, you know, you know, in terms of, you know, it was hard work. And, you know, you can find yourself in a shoot, doing a shoot, and you know, you know, everyone's like looking to you as a photographer, like the magician, trying to sort of conjure up something from from nothing and, and you suddenly realize that it's not happening for whatever reason and um 
you know, it, it, it can become quite painful, actually. Um, that process where, um, you know, you're on a, on a, doing a shoot and it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really hard work and it can be really uncomfortable, especially if you're sporting, a, you know, you've been out with, you know, Liam the night before. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I kind of always treated it like it was sort of, my version of walking on Centre Court of Wimbledon where you have to come away as a victor. You know, you have to come away with a shot because there are no excuses in photography. You know, you can't sort of... The reason why this picture isn't very good is because, you know, I didn't sleep very well the night before. And it's like, you know, you have a bad day at the office and you can go home at the end of the day and forget about it. But, you know, if you have a bad day at the office and you're taking pictures, you know, that picture is there forevermore. So that puts you under a lot of pressure. But... Um, I always seem to get the energy together on a shoot because it, it was all about hitting this kind of sweet spot within the sh uh, within a shoot, and sometimes that would come early on, and sometimes it would come later on. But I always knew I could pull it all together to a defining point. When you get there, it, you know it's such a great feeling. You, you suddenly realise yeah, I've got it, and then you can sort of relax a bit. You know when you know you've got a certain shot in the can. But it, it, it's quite a painful process, that. It's like trying to capture an invisible butterfly in a net. You know, you know what you're trying to catch. And you're not going to be happy until you catch it. And you're trying to move everything towards that. And, and that's not a particularly easy process. But it's obviously a re uh, rewarding process when you get there. Fortunately, you know, I always manage to sort of hit the target. So matter of fact, fortunately, so self-deprecating. Fortunately, mm. I managed to hit the target. You did that and then some. Yeah, oh, time and time again as well. Quite a humble guy. I liked his sport analogies yeah, as well. Yeah, I loved it. Big sport fan. He talked about Lewis Hamilton and I had to cut that out. So, and then he talked about fighter pilots. It was interesting. Uh, let's go to his most famous work, the shot that launched his and Oasis's career. It was a cover of Definitely Maybe, which I brought in yeah. for you guys to have a quick look at, uh, just to remind you, because you've no doubt seen it. Quite unassuming at first glance, um, but as we'll find out, that simplicity is very difficult to achieve. Um, it was really nice to talk to somebody who was happy to talk about his work. So refreshing. Sometimes people get a bit snobby, don't want to yeah. reflect on the past. But he was really happy to talk about it. I found out that the process started with him receiving the album, an early version of the album, before 99.9% .9 of the people who eventually heard it um, would hear it. You know what I mean? So I wanted to know if he was aware of the task at hand from listening to it, that he had a moment in history to deal with. Yeah, I'd heard the album. Uh, I'd had the album a few months, I think. And then it's like, you know, I've got to create a cover photograph for that. It's like, wow. And I knew it was going to be massive. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. You've got to be totally focused on the day and also kind of approach it in quite a dispassionate way. So you, you, don't, you don't want to get too emotional about it. You know, you've got to be really sort of judgmental and objective about it. I think the minute you've stopped... You, you, you start becoming subjective towards a shoot. It, it's something is when you start losing it, I think. But you've got to be completely, totally focused. But uh, with sort of definitely, maybe. I don't. Know, I suppose it's been like, you know, um, it's been like us to cook a meal for the Queen, isn't it? Great. You've point. never cooked before. <laughs> you've <met, yeah. laughs> a new dish. <laughs> you know, make up a new dish to cook for the Queen, kind of thing that you've never done before, and she's going to be the first person that tastes it. 
Is that really? Is, did he really go there with that? I like the centre court at Wimbledon analysis, yes. but there was there was a lot of there was a lot of metaphors and similes thrown about during our conversation. He's a man who talks in visuals. True, he's a creative soul. He's far more creative <laughs> than you or I. Well, you're a creative soul, more creative than Sono and I. That's for sure. So you've had a look at the the album artwork there, and obviously it's it's an, an image which kind of imprinted in our generation's heads. But it is simple at first, but then when you start looking at it, Sono. You, get, you can pick out details that you maybe didn't notice at first glance. Yeah, I mean, just to tell our listeners who don't have the image in front of them, you know, you have one of them, I guess Liam's lying down on Liam. the floor, yeah. uh, facing up, kind of aside from everybody else in the band. You've got Noel, looks like playing guitar on the sofa. The others are just kind of hanging back and looking at a shelf with yeah. like a TV and some albums on it. TV with an old Western on. Yeah, and yeah. it's kind of a weird, you know, there's weird things going on in this photograph. There's like a plastic flamingo on the side. You've got a glow globe you've got like a poster as well so there's a bunch of different elements to this of them just hanging out in apartment where it makes it seem like he's captured them hanging out but they're posing at the same time Mm. yeah perfect definitely maybe that's definitely maybe and i I asked if it was his favorite shot he said it was i I think it has to be because it it was really difficult to shoot that and, and trying to concentrate and get things and getting the everything all the elements correct but when i um when I looked down the camera, it was like a reversed image. So everything's back to front. But when I looked down that camera and I saw that for the first time on the ground glass screen, I, I knew. I thought, "Wow, don't move. We've got it. We've got yeah. you know. We've absolutely got it." And uh, I, I was excited when I saw that. And and I was basically the first person ever to see that image. But I, I was looking at it the other day, you know, dispassionately, like it wasn't. You know, trying to imagine if someone else had taken Separate that picture, yourself, you know, and I was just approaching it cold. I was looking at it, and I'm suddenly thinking, "Wow, that is a." I was saying that is a really arty shot. That the cover to definitely maybe is it. That is someone straight out of art college, with a band from Manchester. You know, the Sex Beatles, as, as, as they were being sort of called at, at the beginning, and suddenly I'm laying this kind of arty vibe on them. You know, I'm getting Liam lying down on the floor. I'm doing all this cross-processing. You've got a globe that's spinning. spinning it's like yeah. The scope for that shot going wrong was enormous. All the elements, all the algorithms, they all came together. It just mm. it worked so perfectly. But I'm, I was thinking, blimey, you know, I stuck that one on Oasis. That was a really arty thing to do. And, and you know, and, and credit to them, you know... Uh, I can't think of many bands where the lead singer would have agreed to sort of lie on the floorboards with his eyes closed. You know, they'd want, you know, the, the singer would want to be visible on the cover with his looks and everything. But, you know, they're a very abstract band. They're thinking out of the box a lot of the time. So it was great having that opportunity to, uh, you know, where you're all these sort of artistic skills, you know, you know, the craft of photography, being able to apply that. Because, I mean, can you imagine if they'd have got another photographer to do that? It would have just been a band in a room. Uh, and, and when I was given the brief, you know, that we're gonna, they want you to photograph it in Bonehead's house, it's like, oh, you're joking, aren't you? Band shot in a, in, in a small living room. But originally, so Bonehead's house is like, was open plan, so he's got a living room, and then he got this dining room. Well, they wanted to be photographed in the dining room around the table. It's like, what are they talking about, you know, around a table? <laughs> you know, I was, I, was, I was a bit kind of 
insecure about photographing at, at Bonehead's house in the first place. But when they said, you know, we want it in the dining room, I thought, I've got to put my foot down here. And I, and, and I said, you know, I'm only going to take, you know, because I looked around and then there's the big bay window. And I thought, the only way it's going to work is if <clears throat> I photograph towards the bay window. Yeah. And uh, and it was like, we either do it that way or some, you know, I, I'm not doing it. You know, band around, sat around a table. It just wasn't going to happen. Then um, a guy called Phil Smith, who was a roadie, brought in this inflatable globe. And it was like, you know, because I'm, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, it's still, you know, it's still a difficult shot, this, you know, and then this globe arrives. The cover suit definitely maybe it was like three, four second exposure. And I thought, yeah, if the globe is spinning, it's going to appear blurred. And that creates an, a sense of surrealism. And that is a kind of catalyst, really, that spinning globe. It was a bit left field. It was a bit of a kind of unexpected twist, wasn't it? You know, it's like, so, but yeah, it could have, if it had been any other photographer, it would have been a band shot in a room. It wouldn't have been the shot that it, you know, the, 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 that it would have been. The voice there of Michael Spencer Jones, and undoubtedly, is he still working? Yeah, he's still working. Yeah, still crushing yeah, and he's it. directing uh, music videos now as well. Um, but to develop the idea he mentioned earlier on about the importance of the shot that is chosen for the album or the single, and how how crucial it is to the success. I figured out he was talking about packaging with a capital P versus packaging with a little P. So, you know, a noun versus a verb, you know, the name packaging yeah. rather than the doing word. Um, the best way, he summed it up best by talking about album artwork that doesn't work. I, I always think, uh, you know, classical music, I don't know, take Beethoven's piano concerto number three or whatever. There's nothing, there's no image that you can relate to that takes you to that piece of music. You know, and it always astounded me, all the classical records. It was always a reflection of a stately home in a lake. <laughs> <laughs> all of them. It's like, how, how dull and boring were those covers, all those classical record covers. And, and, and I always thought that was a real shame. You've got this plethora of all this great music. It's almost like orphaned in terms of, it's, it's like homeless. There's, there's not one image that you can relate to. And um, but like I said, you know Abbey Road or Sergeant Pepper, you can immediately connect with it. In fact, my my argument about great sleeve art is that is Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, yeah. which they say is one of the greatest albums. You know, it's such a you know great '60s psychedelic record. But no one, it's not really on anyone's radar, you know, and it's kind of forgotten and the reason being it's got the worst cover in history it's horrendous yeah if that record had had a really amazing cover it would be a different thing altogether yeah. i mean whoever thought about it's like right what's the album called pet sounds what should we do all right let's go down to the zoo <laughs> and feed one of the llamas with some a bottle of milk. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We'll do a band shot like that. I mean, whose idea was that? <laughs> oh, okay. That how did that? It's like a band. And the Beach Boys weren't the most interesting bunch of people to look <laughs> no, at. I think they're all they, wearing they all brown like, suits. <laughs> they all they all had knitted jumpers and look like. It, yeah. um, don't want to offend anyone here, but you know, I don't know, geography teachers. <laughs> Apologies to any ge uh, geography teachers out there, but. 
but to, you know, like, yeah, we'll get them down the zoo feeding one of the animals. It's like, holy smoke, what were they thinking? That is the worst album cover of all time. And the and the typography as well. Yeah, and it's it, it's you take it's, one look at that album and think, <laughs> no, I'm not putting that on the deck. That's, <laughs> that record is going nowhere near my CD player. Yeah, and you printed out a copy of it just to jog our memories, and it is horrendous. It looks like it is a picture taken for some animal TV show, yeah, like The Farm or something <laughs> yeah. like that. It's a nonsense, is what it is. Or one of those d- uh, joke family Christmas cards Correct. that people send round. That's exactly what it is. Well, he's a man who would know, Michael. Spencer. Spencer Jones has taken some of the greatest album artwork of the of the nineties and the last three decades, and um, he would know. So, according to him, the worst album cover of all time is the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. Imagine what it would have looked like if he had taken the photo, if he'd been assigned that job. So, uh, we moved on uh, to. Well, I wanted to ask him if he was worried about the digital revolution in music, the music industry, you know, with streaming and downloading rather than buying physical releases. Did he feel that we were losing the art form of the album artwork? I think the first LP, the long playing record as we know it, came out, I think, in in, in the 50s, didn't it? I think 1955 hmm. was the first LP. And nothing happened with artwork on those early records, you know, if you look pre-sort of 64, 65, you know, they're just dreadful. Till it's really like the Beatles, I don't think anyone cottoned on to the fact that the packaging could be an art form in, it, in and of itself and become part of, like I said, the creative content, you know, and then suddenly everyone got on it and then it became a big, big thing. But in terms of, you know, it's great having that 12-inch format, but I... I I still think, in some respects, we need it more than ever. Because uh, I was talking to someone who's got all this, you know, he's downloaded all this music, and none of it has got an image next to it. He doesn't know what any of it is. He's got this massive catalogue of music. There's no, there's no visual reference. So I, I think in this sort of internet age of downloads and stuff, we probably need it more than ever mm. to identify with that piece of music. But the thing is, the bands have got to be willing to put, you know, push the boat out, you know, in terms of creating an image. To finish, I wanted to embarrass Michael a little bit because uh, he's quite a humble guy. And um, I put it to him that his work is potentially in more households, living rooms, coffee tables, bedroom walls, um, shelves than any other artwork ever produced just by virtue of the amount of times that these albums have been reproduced and bought and and how loved they are as i said he was quite humble about this and he immediately diverted to something else and anyone who grew up in the uk in the 90s would remember there was an artist called john constable and he had a painting called the hay wayne which is an image which is kind of synonymous with people who grew up at our age in the 70s or 80s or even the 90s because an older auntie or your uncle or your granny would have had john constable Constable's Haywain up on the wall. Um, I think my mum and dad had it when I was very, very little. So anyway, that's the context behind the answer that Michael Spencer Jones gave to that question. I'd never really seen it like that, but yeah, yeah, I think you could, yeah, and, and yeah, they they have been. You, to think the amount of times they've been reproduced is like you know hundreds of millions of times. Yeah, yeah, I'd not really thought of it like that actually. Yeah, 
because um, I can remember uh, my uncle always had a picture of the Hay Wayne. You know, going going back, you know, uh, growing up, beautiful painting. But I, it's funny because I, I did this uh, exhibition in London, and I, I came across one of the shots I'd not seen before, and it's a picture of the Rolls Royce in the swimming pool, but there's, there's no band in it. And I, I created this massive artwork, and I've got it in my living room. It's you know, it's about six feet by four feet. It's massive, and I was looking at it, and I was thinking actually that is a 21st century version of the Haywain. It's got that English landscape sensibility. Yeah. But instead of um, instead of um, a horse and cart going down the middle of a river, there's a Rolls Royce in the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> Something subliminal going off there, I think. But I looked at it and I thought, yeah, I'm proud of that. That is like, you know, if John Constable was looking at that now, he'd say, yeah, nice one. What a guy, though. Swing and a miss. Big thanks once again to you, producer Rog. If you want to find out more about Michael Spencer-Jones, you can follow him. He's at Michael Spencer-Jones. Head to his website, spellboundgalleries.com, where you'll find out he's got books out, portfolios of all his old Oasis uh, artwork. There's the book Supersonic. There's a book on the way called Columbia and another one in the works uh, on the Verve and a still life book. He's a busy man and he's turning his attention to showing us his archive, tens of thousands of images which are unseen. So that was Michael Spencer Jones on Living on a Prior this week. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 